Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. It's Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is Jordan Anderson. Hey, Dr. Patrick. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to roll into a case. 65-year-old male calls EMS, spontaneous nosebleed, started at midnight. He's held pressure for 30 minutes, no luck. Wife's getting antsy. He's getting antsy. You arrive, you find his heart rate's 80. His blood pressure's 170 over 90. He's got a past medical history significant for hypertension and atrial fibrillation, and he's on Xarelto and Metoprolol for those medical problems. So our case today, I want you to keep that in mind as we're discussing. Jordan, what did we do for that, say, last year? Well, I was going through the case trying to think of, of what's going to kill him. Um, really, this case, I wouldn't do anything for. It's kind of, kind of a boring case, especially to start a podcast off with. Yeah, and we've admittedly, as discussing this topic, and we're leading into to nosebleed discussion here, we've, Jordan and I have uh, spearheaded this a bit around the office, and we've gotten a little bit of uh, the side eye, a little, little chuckle here and there that we're uh, saving nosebleed lives one at a time here at MCHD. But in all seriousness, there is new literature, and we have new pharmacologic options that are right at our fingertips, cheap, easy, and in the end, I think that we can convince you today of some patient-centered outcomes, and we talk a lot about patient-centered outcomes here at MCHD, and this is one that I really feel like that it's not super sexy. We're not, you know, dual sequential defibrillating folks and, and, and bringing them back from the dead, but we can do better with the way that we care for nosebleeds in the pre-hospital setting with some really simple adjuncts, and that's, that's really where we want to go today with the podcast. Okay, before we start about start talking about treating the epistaxis, first let's start with what epistaxis is. Tell us what you know. So, basically, no, nosebleed basics. Nosebleeds, ninety plus percent are anterior, meaning they come from the more forward portion of the nasal cavity. Uh, the anatomic location, Kisselbach's plexus, is located on the septum. It is a sort of a adjoining point of multiple blood vessel anastomosis supplies. And bottom line, the skin is super thin there. When the air becomes dry in the wintertime with increased heat use, if you're a picker, it takes very little trauma, very little tissue damage to cause quite a bit of blood from uh, the anterior septum at Kisselbach's plexus. Those are, again, a majority, 90-plus percent of nosebleeds, and generally very amenable to pressure and kind of classic treatment. The 10% that we worry about are the posterior nosebleeds, and that's the sphenopalatine artery, and those really are beyond the scope of pre-hospital care. Those are the ones that make us poop our pants a bit in, in the emergency department because we do all of our normal treatments and the patients are still bleeding. And again, most commonly, these are caused by picking, by trauma. You know, when the humidity drops and uh, the moisture comes out of the air, it makes the, the septum drier and uh, more prone to bleeding. More common in the wintertime. Again, that's a combination of increased heat, 
decreased humidity. And again, by heat, I mean not heat outside. Obviously, it's colder in the winter, but decreased uh, electrical heat in the homes and also uh, increasing URIs. So anytime that you have increased nose blowing, that's going to lead to more trauma. And when we're talking about nosebleeds, before we go too much farther, just a quick reminder, don't forget ABCs. Don't forget your uh, personal protective equipment. These folks don't see very many of them, but you can lose a significant amount of blood from epistaxis. So don't forget, you know, if the patient looks shocky and you see a lot of blood, make sure you're, you know, getting your two, two peripheral IVs, make sure you're considering things like fluids, but really not the ones we're talking about today. We want to talk about the simple, the simple, straightforward nosebleeds. So the simple nosebleed I, I've treated several times in the past, that's going to be pressure on the external of the nose and have them lean forward. But it sounds like maybe that's only effective on the anterior bleeds. Maybe I haven't done a, a bit of effort to, to stop the posterior bleeds. Well, we don't, we don't see very many of those, Jordan. So really when we're talking about the case today, we're going to assume that's, that's an anterior bleed. And yes, from a pre-hospital standpoint, our treatment since the beginning of time has been pressure, pressure, more pressure lean forward. Uh, but spoiler alert, everybody knows this. You've all seen this when you've transported these patients. Tell somebody to hold pressure and how long does it take them to peak? A few seconds. Everybody's peaking. And every time that you let pressure go, what happens to the clot? There goes your clot. So what do we do once the patient gets to the emergency department? What's step two and step three to this treatment? So you know, classically, these patients have been told to apply pressure in the ambulance, uh, lean forward, don't let go. They always do let go. When they arrive to see me in the emergency department, I'm going to immediately apply a vasoconstrictor of some form. Historically, before, before my time, that was cocaine. Uh, more recently, options of neosinephrine or oxymetazoline or afrin. All these are topical vasoconstrictors meant to do exactly that in the nasal passage constrict the site where the bleeding's coming from. I immediately had the patient hold pressure as well and urge them, again, not to, to peak. Uh, this patient, if you listen closely to the case vignette, is on Xarelto, one of the new direct oral anticoagulants. So a lot of our nosebleeds are on Xarelto or Eliquis or Coumadin, Plavix, aspirin, antiplatelets or anticoagulants. And when we see these as emergency physicians, it often makes me really jump to step three. So pressure one, vasoconstrictor two, and usually we're headed towards some form of packing in these patients. Uh, packing options are many. We have just simple old school nasal gauze packing, which is, uh, again, more of an old school way of approaching it. There's a product called Miracel, which is a sponge-like uh, nasal tampon that's uh, used. Uh, there are balloon nasal tampons, Rhino Rocket and Rapid Rhino being two of the more popular ones. And all of these, again, are basically inserted into the nasal cavity to exert pressure. If packing is successful, oftentimes the patients can be discharged with packing uh, and close ear, nose, and throat follow-up for removal and cautery if needed. Uh, cautery can be performed in the emergency department as well. Silver nitrate uh, sticks is uh, one of the methods to uh, perform chemical cautery. Again, that requires you to be able to localize the source of bleeding, which in my experience is uh, easier said than done. If a patient getting to your posterior nosebleed patient, Jordan, if you put a nasal pack in, a rhino rocket or a Miracel, you apply Afrin, you apply pressure, and it's a posterior sphenopalatine artery bleed, none of those things are going to compress that sphenopalatine artery. It's deeper than that. 
Um, so those are the patients that end up with ENT consultation in the emergency department in the hospital and often emergent fiber optic evaluation and fiber optic assisted uh, cautery. So outside the scope of practice of even even the emergency physician. So that's how you kind of determine it's posterior because it's refractory to the treatments you just talked about. Yeah, and oftentimes you'll put one pack in on the side that you think is bleeding the most. And then if that doesn't work, you put a second pack in the other side, just attempting more pressure. And then if you still see posterior blood, so you still see blood in the oropharynx, so you got both, both nostrils packed, and you still see active bleeding in the posterior oropharynx, you assume that it's a posterior bleed at that point. That's really, that's the, that's the progression. So all that's kind of beyond where we're going to get, we're not going to do a chemical cauterization or double packing. I think it's, it's pretty clear this podcast is going to go to the application of atomized TXA um, if you're not there with us yet. But before you get there, where's the evidence that says that's uh, not a crazy idea and it's going to be safe and effective for our patients? So if, if you've listened to the podcast over the past year, we've talked about TXA a couple times in relation to trauma. And like anything, when we go to the effort of adding a medication, procuring, protocol writing, educational component, all we've done in the past 18 months or so with tranexamic acid here at MCHD, as, as one of the medical directors and you know someone interested in the clinical side of this, my initial thought is how can we maximize the use of this medication, right? Obviously, we've looked at crash and matters and and the TXA trauma literature and decided that our trauma patients uh, benefit from this, uh, my initial thought when we got past step one was, well, how else can we use TXA? And where else do we have good evidence? And epistaxis and TXA use was one that has been uh, hot in the, in the foam world and on, on the blogs and in some of the podcasts over the past 18 to 24 months. And to me, it makes sense if we have the medication on the trucks and it's safe and inexpensive and minimal side effects, and there's another condition we can use it for, then that's the right thing to do for our patients. So where does the TXA and epistaxis evidence come from? The basis of this is from a condition called hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, uh, which is a hereditary condition uh, that involves vascular abnormalities that, that bleed. And one of the places that manifests is epistaxis. And these rare patients were probably the first literature documented patients that were shown to benefit from TXA in cases of nosebleeds. And there were a couple papers in the early 2000s showing topical and oral TXA decreased the nosebleed frequency and length in these HHT patients. Now, these are super rare, so these were very small studies, but an Iranian group in 2013 took this to regular everyday nosebleeds, and they soaked cotton pledgets, which basically cotton gauze packs, soaked them in TXA, and compared those gauze packs to gauze packs soaked in epinephrine, so kind of classic vasoconstrictor, and they looked at which ones stopped bleeding quicker, which ones were able to be discharged quicker, and who were happier, and the TXA group went out in all three. Now, from a pre-hospital standpoint, you know, we're not classically trained in, in packing nosebleeds, and to be honest, I don't pack nosebleeds bleeds myself in the emergency department with cotton pledgets. So this was sort of an encouraging paper, but didn't really apply exactly to what I do every day. Uh, there was a paper from Oregon in 2018, uh, Birmingham et al. that looked at TXA with packing versus standard treatment, which was variable. And they found that the TXA group used less packing at discharge and required less ENT consults. So a little more 
applicable to directly what we do. The Iranian group that we spoke about, they looked at TXA and patients on antiplatelet meds, and they found that, again, bleeding was shortened. Patients had decreased length of stay in the emergency department and decreased rebleeding. So does it work in patients on clopidogrel or Plavix? Does it work in patients on Xarelto or Eliquis? This suggests, that at least in the antiplatelet groups, that it works similarly but the real study that piqued my interest was just this year, and it was by Akon uh, et al. in Annals of Emergency Medicine. So a big high-impact journal, a well-done study. And what the study compared was atomized TXA versus Maricel, again, which is a, a form of nasal sponge packing. And the TXA group had less rebleeding. Uh, it was equivalent to the Maricel. And more importantly, the study was randomized and prospective. So this looks at all the tools that we have on the truck, right? We've got atomizers. We use atomizers frequently for a lot of our pediatric, pediatric medications, uh, benzos, uh, fentanyl. And in the end, these patients had less rebleeding, and it was just as good as putting a pack in there. And for the you know medic listeners out there, if you've never placed a nasal pack, it's one of the more miserable things that you can do to a patient. Patients hate it, especially when you you know when you shove that baby back in deep. They hate it. And when you blow the balloon up, they hate it. So from a patient-centered outcome standpoint, if we can put atomized TXA in patient's nose en route and they end up with less packs when they leave the hospital, to me, that's a, that's a, a game changer and a, a real winner. Yeah, so you're getting less side effects potentially with the less rebleeding and it's a more comfortable procedure. I mean, comfortable by a just I mean, light years. Right. So what is ideal with pre-hospital TXA use? It's going to be minimal additional cost, right? Minimal training addition, skill addition, right? We're not, we don't require teaching packing with this, looking at this literature. We've already got atomizers. We've already got the TXA. To me, it, it seems like a no-brainer. I feel compelled to say that if you want to read more on those studies, whoever you are out there, that that'll be posted on the show notes. Linked in the show notes. Um, Absolutely. Why don't you go through our exact protocol though? So obviously we got the TXA, but how do, how do you go through that? How much do you use? Those kind of things. Like everything, I'm I'm a big fan of keeping it keeping it simple, stupid, kiss the kiss sort of paradigm. And so we're not going to be packing noses. And I've had several paramedic ask ask me about, you know, in discussion about this protocol. Why aren't why aren't we packing noses or could we? And the real answer to that is is number one, it's woefully uncomfortable. Um, you know, vagal response is not uncommon for folks. I've seen folks brady down, I've seen folks get hypoxic. It's just another layer of complexity that if we don't have to introduce, I feel better not doing it. So what are we going to do specifically? How does our protocol read? You know, we're not attempting to locate the bleeding site. We know that 90% plus are anterior. So I feel like the value of that, especially in the emergent setting, really doesn't warrant the complexity of, of tools necessary, light necessary, things that we don't really have classically. So we're going to have patients, we're going to assume they're anterior, we're going to have the patients blow both sides thoroughly, clear the clots out. We're going to atomize 100 milligrams or one milliliter of TXA, the IV formulation, same one we use in trauma patients, in each nostril. So let's not worry about which side it's coming from. Let's not worry about where it is. Let's assume it's anterior. We're going to blow, squirt both sides, and we're going to apply our new fancy blue nasal clips that Jordan found for us. They're super expensive. They cost all of a dime or so each. The only additional purchase for this protocol. So if you're out there listening and you stock TXA already, not a huge addition to add the, the blue nasal clips. And I've actually walked around the office with these and tried them on. 
and they're not the most uncomfortable thing ever. And again, don't let the patients peak. They all want to peak. I think that's the beauty of it is that we have all the tools minus the 10 cents. And I think putting that clip on your nose kind of reminds you not to peak. It's not me holding pressure and getting tired or, or having some other intervention I need to do. It's the clip that stays on kind of and, set it and forget and, it. And the patients are always going to look. So it doesn't involve the patients holding that pressure either. It frees their hands up. They can wipe the blood off. You know, they can sit their hands in their lap and they don't have to think about it. And then when we get to the ER, we're going to take the clip off, assess bleeding cessation, a simple yes or no check mark, and that's it. It's that simple. So I guess going back to nosebleeds in general, I would have told you um, before you taught me otherwise that this is typically caused by hypertension, but that's that's not the case. What do we know about the correlation between hypertension and nosebleeds? Well, I don't want to go so far as to say it's not the case, but the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg, is definitely one that's not 100% clarified in the literature. A lot of these patients, and if you look back at our vignette, our patient was 170 over 90. A lot of these patients will be hypertensive. And classically, the teaching has been that the patient was hypertensive and that caused the bleed. There really is no good data out there. But for this reason, just because a lot of these patients are hypertensive, we didn't add pre-hospital vasoconstrictors just so we didn't have to worry about is their blood pressure a certain value or is it not? Real question is, are the patients bleeding because they're hypertensive or are they hypertensive due to the bleeding itself, the fear of that? and basically a, a ramped up sort of white coat syndrome. And, you know, ASEP guidelines are pretty clear. They state that to treat the pain, to treat the bleeding, but don't rapidly lower the blood pressure. There's a couple meta-analysis in the literature that we can link in the show notes in the ENT literature that, that came to similar conclusions that it's not 100% clear that the correlation of hypertension and nosebleeds doesn't really equal causation. So is it the cause? It doesn't appear that way. Again, it's really muddy out there. And so from our protocol standpoint, by squirting the milliliter of TXA in both nostrils, putting the clamp on, we don't have to really think through that. So it's kind of a non-issue. And when they come to me in the ED, I can decide what to do next, whether that's apply some vasoconstrictor, whether that's head straight to a pack. You know, that's, that's something we can decide further down the line. I guess that kind of makes me think about trauma too. So not really on the hypertension realm here, but the cause could be trauma. That could have been a, a punch to the face that caused the epistaxis. That would be treated the same way here. Yeah. So we're we, in our protocol, we've not delineated between traumatic and non-traumatic nosebleeds. I don't see that's really necessary. So most of our nosebleeds that we care for, we run on 50 or so a year here at MCHD. And most of those are non-traumatic but if you've got a, a traumatic nosebleed that got punched in the nose and bleeding like stink, I would have them blow out both sides. I would have them suck a milliliter of TXA up both sides and put a clamp on. I don't think it will hurt anything at all. And if you deliver that patient to me in the ED and take the clamp off and their nose is not bleeding, I'll be thankful. I guess there's a point not to be overly fearful of the isolated head injury, but the, the guy that's unconscious from the car wreck with blood on his face isn't the epistaxis we're looking for, but kind of an isolated nose injury. And, and again, we're not talking about, I think it's a good point to bring up, Jordan, is we're not talking about blood in the nares. We're not talking about blood on the face. We're talking about active bleeding from one side of the other. So if you've got a bloody face and you wipe it off and you don't see any active bleeding, then manage that patient's airway, manage their breathing, manage their circulation, do your, do your foundational trauma care. We're talking about isolated blood, active blood, from one side or the other. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing the patients that's walking towards me, either holding their nose or blowing blood out of their nose, leaning forward, you know, trying to pinch their nose. So. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, summarize what we've got here and take us home? 
So we want to treat all comers here at MCHD, anticoagulants, antiplatelets, one side, both sides, blood pressure elevated, all of the above. So we've written our protocol so that that one milliliter of uh, TXA, 100 milligrams, IV formulation we use in trauma in each nostril after the patient blows. Be sure to have them blow and clear those clots, then squirt both sides and apply the pressure. Don't look until you get to the hospital. Don't forget your PPE. Don't get this. I mean, people with nosebleeds are always, they always tend to be coughing or sneezing. And, you know, when they talk to you, they're spitting blood. Make sure that you, if you need a mask or you need gloves, make sure you're keeping, keeping good eye cover and good mucous membrane cover. Don't forget your ABCs. We don't see exsanguinating hemorrhagic shock nosebleeds patients very often, but they are possible. If the airway needs control, then by all means control it. TXA should be an afterthought in this situation. You know, ABCs always come first. Uh, treat the bleeding first, not the blood pressure. This is not a situation of end organ damage. We've talked about end organ damage on other podcasts. You know, stroke, pulmonary edema, renal failure, uh, thoracic dissection, eclampsia. Those are end organ damage situations. Remember that most of the time the thought is in these patients that they're hypertensive because they are stressed and anxious about the bleeding. That most of the time the bleeding comes first and the hypertension comes second. So let's treat any pain, let's treat the bleeding, and let the emergency departments deal with the blood pressure. And again, we're not putting oxymetazolin, we're not putting neosinephrine in our protocol, so we don't really have to worry about it. But if you see 170 over 90 or 190 over 90, don't be jerking out the labetalol and pushing labetalol on these patients. Control the nosebleed, and most of the time that blood pressure will settle down. So that's, uh, that's, that's about all I have for us today, Jordan. We'll note all of the reference studies in the show notes. And as always, if you have questions or concerns, email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please continue to leave us reviews wherever you listen to your podcast. Helps get us out there, get us more visible. And uh, we will talk to everyone again soon. Thanks as always for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.